Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This One Nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate to get Brexit done. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take. This is so unique an outcome. Has there been a party that's gone to the country for the fourth time of asking and increased its standing in Parliament? There is a clear desire and endorsement for the notion that Scotland should not be landed with a Boris Johnson government and ripped out of Europe against our will. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, the dust has settled a little. They've been a weekend to think about all this. But have we come to any serious conclusions about where this is going? First of all, I suppose the Brexit agenda is the key. Yeah, onwards and upwards to Brexit, but no to an indie ref too already. And then we get news of a pared down Queen's speech on Thursday. And we shouldn't forget the bloodletting that's about to begin in the Labour Party. Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell says the process should take eight to ten weeks, but some questions as to whether in fact Jeremy Corbyn will stay until March or even possibly May. And the Chief Secretary of Treasury, Rishi Sunak, says government plans to put the Brexit legislation before Parliament before Christmas. And that isn't far away. Uh, yes, it's only next week. Uh, joining us later on in the programme is Roger Mortimer, Professor of Public Opinion and Political Analysis at King's College London. Uh, to mull over all of this, we've had a weekend, possibly a few glasses of wine, uh, to figure it all out. But in the meantime, let's give you the headlines from today, because Boris Johnson is expected to appoint three new ministers to his cabinet following his landslide victory in last week's election. Downing Street says that the government will reintroduce a law to deliver Brexit before Christmas that paves the way for the divorce to take place by the end of January. Meanwhile, the contest to succeed the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, heating up several names entering the fray. Jess Phillips, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Elisa Nandy, all being tipped as potential replacements. Uh, at the same time, several Labour politicians are calling for a clean break from Corbynism. Stephen Kinnock, for example, he blames Jeremy Corbyn for the defeat in Thursday's general election, calling Corbyn's methods weak and incompetent. Labour is a coalition of cities and towns, young and old. We need a leader who recognises what the questions are that this election poses for us, and that priority has to be to reconnect with those people who live in towns who are not graduates. That was that was uh, Stephen Kinnock giving us a sense, I guess, of what some, at least, in the Labour Party are feeling. Well, I'm very pleased to see joining us now in the studio here is Bloomberg's UK government editor, Tim Ross. So, Tim, first of all, the timetable for the week. Uh, I mean, it's it's a busy time. Christmas only, what? Uh, a week away. A week away, even. yes. I mean, can they do all that they've got? It's Queen's speech, the withdrawal bill. How's it all going to work? Well, first thing is this afternoon we're going to get a reshuffle. Uh, Johnson has said that he's going to, his officer said he's going to 
produce a fairly limited reshuffle, I think, we'll get, which is just to fill some of those gaps that were left during the campaign. We need a new culture secretary. Uh, we need a new secretary of state for Wales. And we need a new environment minister as well. Mm-hmm. And are there any sort of names in the frame that are being suggested? I mean, obviously, the announcement isn't, hasn't come out yet. There's an awful lot of speculation and pretty much no consensus about who's going to get these jobs. <laughs> uh, a lot of people guessing, but we, we won't have too long to wait. I mean, the culture job, I think, is probably the most interesting and significant, not least because of that promise you might have remembered from the campaign when Johnson let it be known he was no fan of the BBC licence fee and that will have to be reviewed Uh, so that's going to be a big a big task for whoever gets that job John Whittingdale used to be the culture secretary um, and in fact Johnson's girlfriend Carrie Simons was Whittingdale's special advisor so she might uh, she did quite enjoy working for him I think so she she might might be perhaps whispering in the Prime Minister's ear to suggest that's the way appointments are made in government I think it's it's an interesting thought isn't it Um, we'll never know probably but but anyway Whittingdale was a real basher of the BBC he took a very tough line with them so uh, if that's the job that he's doing he might be a guy to do that very interesting, of course. Yeah, look, the Johnson administration's uh, only been around for four months. So, yes, it was still sort of uh, trying to uh, pass what they may well do in this now new term. Look, we've also got our Brexit editor, Ed Evans, in the London radio studio. You've been with us throughout the political campaign. So I'm really interested to hear what your takeaway is uh, from last week. In terms of Brexit, are we going to get a softer Brexit now that Boris Johnson has this massive majority? I think that's going to be the choice that he's got to make over the next 12 months. Um, we'll get the Brexit withdrawal agreement bill on Friday. That will should sail through Parliament very quickly. So Brexit will happen on the 31st. Does it mean that we get a does a larger majority mean that we'll get a softer Brexit? I'm not so sure. It depends on how the trade talks are sequenced. If you start with trading goods, then very possibly, because, of course, he might want to go for a softer deal that protects free trade in goods. Obviously, a lot of his new MPs are from traditional manufacturing areas. Uh, That, of course, would leave services to the next stage, could be left out. Then you get into a question, well, okay, do you get a free trade deal in in goods but not in services? And do you then throw the City of London, essentially, under a bus later in the process? So there's there's a tension there. Obviously, there are some in his party for whom Brexit is the opportunity they've been waiting for to turn Britain into sort of Singapore on Thames, if you like. And you know, how Johnson will, with, will, will um, deal with those tensions within his party, we'll find out. Well, isn't that, isn't that really at the core of it, Ed? Because if he's got 80, I think it's 80, is his majority, then is a sense in which he doesn't need to worry as much about, for example, the ERG members. And, I mean, the, the, the guess has been that perhaps his slightly more liberal with a small L instincts might then push him away from that kind of hard Brexit that they were pushing for. Sure. Um, but equally, on goods, it's a very easy deal. It, on one level, it's a very easy trade deal for him to do. And it's a, it's a very soft trade, soft Brexit uh, looking trade deal in that, you know, we, uh, we have a trade deficit in goods with the EU. Essentially, the EU is one of our largest customers. And we're saying we want to go on doing that business, that, that business as before. That's a relatively straightforward uh, 
deal to strike with the EU. Where it gets much harder is on services. And that's really where um, a lot of the pressure that, that you're seeing in the Tory party. It's about liberalising the city of London. It's about um, making that, that part of the economy freer and giving it sway to, to diverge from EU rules. That's going to be the harder bit. Yeah, no, it, it certainly is. And of course, just today, we had the PMI numbers out of the UK, uh, Tim, didn't we? So UK manufacturing actually suffering its worst month in more than seven years. So how much do you think the economy is actually going to put pressure on uh, Mr. Johnson? And, you know, could uh, the phrase that I was hearing a lot of was it's going to be a very short honeymoon for, for Mr. Johnson as PM? I think it's a good question. I'm not sure what the answer is, really, to be honest. I mean, the real pressure is on it always comes in the run up to an election. We've just mm. had one. So, so Johnson could not. probably weather quite a bit of difficulty economically in the hope that in five years time, which is how long we've got to wait potentially for the next election, it will all have come good again. Let's look at another issue that's really hovering over all this, which which slightly was ignored, I suppose, perhaps in the immediate aftermath of what happened uh, on Thursday night and Friday, which is the Scotland issue, because while it may have been a Tory landslide across the rest of the country, it certainly wasn't in Scotland. Scotland is a very different case. And once again, Nicola Sturgeon, the Chief Minister, has put out the idea that there must be a second independence referendum. So, Tim, Boris Johnson has said, and indeed Michael Gove has said more recently, that there will not be one. Technically, of course, that's right, because you can't force it uh, if you don't have a majority of MPs in Westminster. But is there more to it than that? I mean, is the pressure going to be unstoppable just because of the number of MPs from Scotland who are SNP? I think that's probably not enough on its own, but... It's, I think you're right, there is going to be pressure. This argument is not going to go away. Johnson said previously that there wouldn't be a referendum on independence, and Michael Gove was very hardline about it yesterday on the TV. But to be totally honest with you, what no, nobody's really talking about yet is the fact that in 2021 we have new elections for the Holyrood Parliament in Scotland. And if the SNP cleans up there in the way that they did in the Westminster election, you can see a very a much stronger case potentially for that referendum taking place. And then at that point, I think it becomes quite difficult for the Westminster government to keep saying no. Mm, becomes much more of a live issue. Yes, the SNP, of course, I remind you, uh, won 48 of Scotland's 59 seats in last week's um, election. So the SNP's trade spokesperson, uh, Stuart Hosey, has been speaking about this issue. He says that the views of Scottish people must be respected. Have a listen. Clearly, there's a public mood to have this second independence referendum. That decision should lie in Scotland and we should have the right to choose. I think it's a foolish politician of any persuasion who stands against the will of the people like that. So the Conservatives have repeatedly said that they won't allow another referendum. Uh, but Ed, how do you, you know, see this playing out? And obviously, you know, the idea is tied in with, with Brexit, of course. Scotland potentially could become an independent nation, part of the EU. Who knows? But how do you see this issue? I think you've got to look at terms of where the support for Brexit came from and how Johnson packaged it into an election winning formula. And that is, you know, this is essentially an English nationalist movement uh, that doesn't really care about Scotland and still less Northern Ireland, where, of course, you'll see the unionists are now in the minority for the first time. Um, that's that is what is driving this. And that is going to be the, that is what where this conflict is going to go. Um, you're going to, you know, obviously Scotland, the nationalism is bound up with many more grievances than just Brexit, but it has brought much more clarity to it than, than anything before. And I think, as Tim says, this is going to go on for, well, for years. Let me bring Tim in finally, just to end this section by saying, 
is there's a sense in which Johnson now went to the north. He said, I'm I'm going to try and be the, the prime minister for the whole country, bringing in all these people who lent him their votes, inverted commas. Is there a sense that he can heal all these divisions we're talking about? Does he have the capacity? I think he's going to try. I and we'll just have to have to see. I mean, I, this, the England Scotland conflict is a very very live one. You just look at the map. Scotland is yellow and England is blue, basically, and that tells you the story. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. There's a lot of else happening around at the moment, and not least the fact that the Labour civil war appears to have begun. The Shadow Foreign Secretary, Emily Thornberry, has announced she's taking the former Labour MP, Caroline Flint, to court, accusing her of making up, well, I won't say what she's accusing her of making up, about her in a TV interview. Caroline Flint claimed in a Sky News interview on Sunday that Emily Thornberry had once said to a fellow MP, she was glad my constituents aren't as stupid as yours. Yeah, that's a real slugfest, isn't it? Uh, Now, what about this uh, Financial Times editorial that caught our eye? So the idea that all Britain's Labour Party needs to do to win is offer true socialism while it has been tested to destruction, according uh, to the FT. Jeremy Corbyn's disastrous leadership, uh, you know, the party sinking to the lowest seat total since 1935. Uh, So, yeah, the, the editorial sort of talking about how it may get easier once the Brexit issue is out of the way. Uh, but really a very harsh dissection, obviously, of what happened to it, Labour. It says, winning a majority in five years after such a defeat looks like a stretch. To have a chance, mm. Labour must refashion itself as a modern, credible social democratic party with broad appeal to the electorate. Now, the paper says, is the time for serious reflection about how it can play a meaningful role in 21st century Britain and avoid a slow descent into oblivion. Mm. And just lastly, in terms of our newspaper roundup for you, so The Express talking about how Boris Johnson must now deliver to the neglected North. This could be a huge pressure point in the next uh, government. Uh, That's according to Stephen Pollard. It has always been said that Boris Johnson is a Marmite figure, uh, relieved to say that uh, he was clearly wrong, uh, that he was worried that he was not the right man to defeat defeat the left, but that Boris uh, needs to connect with those voters who lent them uh, the votes to to the Conservatives. It ends by saying, now comes the really hard part, delivering the goods. So that's what he means. It's a moment when Boris Johnson has to make good on what he's been talking about. Yeah, which many people, of course, have promised. And it's a, it's a very tricky one uh, to try to boost uh, the economy of the north of the UK. But perhaps our next guest, Roger Mortimer, can reflect on this and all the other issues facing Mr Johnson and his colleagues. Uh, Roger Mortimer, Professor of Public Opinion and Political Analysis at King's College London. A very warm welcome Hello. to the programme, Roger. Thank you for joining us. What did you learn from this election? 
I guess, first of all, that we really are a, a very divided nation these days. Mm. Um, the Conservatives have got their votes, they've, they've won, they are clearly popular with the people who are voting for them. Labour, equally popular with the people that voted for them, although there were less of them. And I think more than at any other elections in, in, in recent times, the I mean, almost contempt of voters of each side for the other side um, has become almost overwhelming. They're not listening to the criticisms of their own leaders or the, 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 the praise of the other side. Um, a lot of voters essentially have closed minds at the moment. Do you think, in a sense, though, this is it's it was the Brexit election par excellence? A lot of people saw it almost as the mm-hmm. second referendum. I heard that said in various ways. But but at the same time, this has killed it because now it's done and dusted. If, as we assume, Boris Johnson takes the UK out of the EU on January the thirty first, uh, even figures like Michael Heseltine, the the former uh, Conservative minister who was very opposed to to Brexit, said it's done now. For for 20 years we can't revisit this anymore does that in a sense remove the sting that you're talking about do you think in future elections well it, i mean it's possible that it may do as you say that this particular issue now i think is fully resolved there is going to be brexit um we don't yet know what sort of a brexit we'll get we don't yet know whether it's going to be a roaring success or a horrible failure and five years down the line, when we next have a general election, those issues are then possibly going to come back. But, but it, yes, but you have to see. What about, uh, on the flip side, um, the lessons from the Labour defeat? I mean, we've just been talking about, Roger and I, uh, the, uh, the the kind of bloodbath that we're expecting now and the various names that have come forward uh, potentially as replacements for Jeremy Corbyn. A very, very heavy defeat. His polling was uh, you know, very poor in the run-up too. How, how do you see this sort of period of reflection that Corbyn has, has talked about? Do you think that Labour will be able to take responsibility and, and find a way forwards? I mean, it's going to be very difficult for them because they clearly don't agree on what went wrong. And you know, historically, this has been a problem for the Labour Party on occasions when they have badly lost elections. Mm. Uh, they've often found it very difficult to immediately agree on what the problem was and come come to a solution that increases their, their votes at the next election. And as a pollster, what do you think went wrong for, for the Labour message? Well, it's a combination of, of very many different things. Clearly, Brexit had a, a, a very important fa- um, effect. But in a sense, Brexit was only a symptom of a, um, a wider disillusionment. A lot of communities that have traditionally been Labour voting have begun to feel that the Labour Party simply doesn't have anything to offer them anymore, doesn't care for them, uh, and Labour has got to find some way of turning that round if they ever want to win an election again. But they now have the problem that those communities for the moment have swung to the Conservatives. Uh, They've got to reverse that first. They've got to um, find a way of shaking the the face of their former voters in Boris Johnson before they can even start... thinking about how to convince them to vote Labour again in the future. I mean, I was struck by that line in the Financial Times editorial we were reading this before we spoke to you, which which said that the idea of, of 
hard socialism as a uh, as an idea that would bring in a lot of votes has been tested to destruction. Is there, I mean, from polling evidence, any constituency really out there for the kind of, uh, of fairly hard left socialism that Jeremy Corbyn was was putting out? Well, yes, and that, I mean that's part of the problem. There are a significant number of voters who very strongly believe in that, but they're far far short of the number that are needed to win a general election. And they're not succeeding in, in in putting those ideas across to other voters who used to vote Labour. Mm. What about then, um, again, an issue that we've dis- discussed uh, in the last few minutes around Scotland and SNP. Uh, you know, one of our uh, guests was speaking about Scotland basically being yellow and England being blue. So mm-hmm. I think this plays into your uh, idea and central theme of how divided uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland are now uh, as a nation. Uh, the Scottish independent referendum, another referendum, do you see that coming? And, and why? Is Scotland so very different in views from the rest of the UK? I mean, it's, it, it's very difficult to know exactly what's going to happen because, you know, there are no rules for this. We have the Conservatives have won a clear majority in the UK and a big part of their manifesto was no more referendums. They made quite clear if, if they won, there would be no second Scottish independence referendum. At the same time, the SNP have won very clearly on... Uh, an issue of Scotland must have a second independence referendum. So they both have a a democratic mandate of a sort, and somehow now they've got to find a a way of resolving those those two things. One thing I wanted to to ask you was was in terms of the attitude towards Brexit, because one of the things I've heard come up again and again is that suggestion that once Brexit has happened in the sense that you can draw a line and say, you voted for it, you've now got it, most people do not care or would want to know what kind of Brexit it is. And that that, that you can draw a line on that basis. Uh, is that reflected in opinion? Um, I, I think that's certainly true in, in the way most people are thinking at the moment. And it, to some extent, I think that's been driven by the media and the way the media has reported the issue. Um, it, it, it's all been focused on the idea of Brexit being a single point in time. We either get out or we don't, and then it's done. And, of course, that's not the case. Um, the moment we do get out, we've got several years of important negotiations about what happens next. But no one, if, if, if someone from, the, from the, the Brexit party background, say, came up once Brexit has done and said, no, this isn't real Brexit, this isn't, this isn't what you voted for, would that have any traction, do you think? Um, at the moment, I don't think it would do. But again, if you go two, three years down the line, and it turns out that things haven't worked out, the British economy is tanked, we're not getting the, the, the trade deals we were hoping to get, at that point, maybe, you know, the recriminations will start... Nigel Farage will, will, will be saying this has gone wrong because it wasn't a real Brexit. Um, the Remainers will be saying this has gone wrong because Brexit was always a bad idea in the first place. Uh, and the argument restarts and maybe the wounds reopen. Yeah, that could certainly uh, be... Uh, but, but of course, you know, if it all goes swimmingly well and Britain is looking happy and triumphant in, in four years' time, then in that case the argument is very clearly over. Yeah, indeed. Also, just a thought on Prime Minister Boris Johnson, um, who actually, you know, has in some ways, as you say, he's a very Marmite candidate. He's very popular, very firmly with a lot of people. What next in terms of of 
his popularity, though, over the coming kind of months and years? What's going to be the next big test and what usually happens to, to prime ministers in their first sort of six months of office? Well, um, in the first few months, prime ministers nearly always get some sort of a honeymoon period. Um, and in a sense, you can say that Boris Johnson's already had that. He's been in since the summer and he, he's won a, a remarkably good general election victory, probably on the back of that. Um, there's a limit to how long that goes on, how long the, the public is prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt. And eventually, they have to start delivering, they have to start you know, keeping their promises, give, keeping their voters happy yeah. um, to, to maintain their popularity. And that's far harder, and many prime ministers never achieve that at all. Moving downwards almost from the moment they get in. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.